Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 16. I am your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode of the podcast is very special for two reasons. Number one, this is the finale of season one of the podcast. After this episode, we will be on hiatus until late January or early February, at which point we will be back with more excellent conversations with excellent theologians. The second and more important reason is this episode features my conversation with Natalia Imperatori Lee. I had the opportunity to speak with Natalia at the CTSA meeting this past June, and it was wonderful, it was insightful, it was funny. We talk about the importance of friendship in theology, about how she became interested in ecclesiology and the study of the church. And we talk about her efforts to help Hispanic and first-generation college students cultivate a wider imagination about the professional opportunities they can have in this life. I hope you greatly enjoy this episode and leave us comments on the blog or on iTunes. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Today with the Daily Theology Podcast, we're here with Natalia Imperatori Lee, who's an associate professor of religious studies at Manhattan College. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. How's it going? It's going all right. Good. So the, the first question I like to ask people and sort of talk about is, how did you come to be a theologian? What like, got you into doing the field? Was mm-hmm. it you know, anything in particular? Was mm-hmm. it a you know, long-standing desire? You know, what... I don't know that I'd call it a lot. Well, I guess it has turned out to be a long-standing desire the older I get. It started for me in high school where I had a really, really good religion teacher who is actually now also a member of the CTSA. Hey. And we finished our doctorates within a year of each other, Wow, which is really cool. Uh, so yeah, Elsie Miranda, my n- super awesome high school teacher, gave me a copy of Sandra Schneider's Women in the Word on the down low when I was in the 11th grade. <laughs> That's awesome. And yeah, it completely blew my mind. And I thought, oh my God, I need to do this. Uh, This is amazing. I want to read all of these things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tried to do. And she was, besides being sort of good at slipping you contraband feminist (laughs) theology, (laughs) she was also... Was it in like a a paper bag? Totally. No, no. She handed it to me in her (laughs) campus ministry office, which was like in a trailer in a Florida school. (laughs) And it was like, here, put this in your backpack. And go home and read it. It was very sort of on the dead. No, it wasn't. She was, she's great. And, but besides that, she was also sort of a really, she was really invested in her students and she really cared a lot about her students, which is why I never, ever poo-poo the uh, high school religion teachers mm-hmm. because they do really important work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um, harder than anyone gives it credit for. Yeah, it is. It is. And I was a huge pain because I asked a lot of questions and I mm-hmm. wanted to know a lot of things. And I was like, what if Jesus didn't really rise and he just had like good friends that thought he was awesome and that's why Mm -hmm. they wrote the gospels and she just said yeah maybe (laughs) and then handed me this and that was it (laughs) and then I was hooked (laughs) wow and so so where did you go from there so from there I went to Fordham and I went to Fordham not knowing that Beth Johnson was there Mm. but obviously that had she been one of the contraband texts uh, she had not yet been one of the contraband texts although Elsie did tell me you really need to find Beth Johnson when you get to Fordham and I did and so Beth and I were really, you know, worked together. I mean, I studied with her in the sense of I went to all of her classes. And then I got a good friend, Grant Galicho, mm-hmm. who works at Commonweal. And he and I were two, the two academic theology majors. There were mm-hmm. some theology majors that were doing more ministerial things. Okay. And we were the academic ones. And yeah, so we, that, the conversation that has developed between the two of us and continued for 20 years now has really sort of sustained, I think, both of us in mm-hmm. important ways. And so did you, 
Like, did you know right away you wanted to go into graduate school? Did you? Yeah, I pretty much figured, okay. you know, if I was interested in this, I needed to get like a PhD or else I was going to not get a job. Okay. <laughs> it was okay. kind of pragmatic. Okay. And I knew since I was, uh, since I am a woman, that I didn't really want to take time off between. Okay. Because I wanted to, I knew I wanted a family and I wanted to do that when I was still relatively young. So I didn't want to sort of hop in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just plowed through. I okay. went from Fordham to the University of Chicago to Notre Dame. Nice. That's quite the, quite the track. It was. Yeah. A little tour of the United <laughs> States. I, I also went to U of C for my master's. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm part, so I'm kind of curious, like, how, how did that shape you? Cause like, like for me, yeah, like, I, cause I went to Georgetown's undergrad, and I, it was a very different environment, like, uh, right away. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm curious, like, what that was like for you. It was terrifying. Um, it was, yeah, I, I feel I was really not prepared. Well, I, I don't know that you can be prepared to go to the University of Chicago Divinity School, but (laughs) I was so out of my league. It was, yeah, everyone was older Mm. except for me and Grant. Thankfully Grant went with me. Mm. (laughs) So that was awesome. But everyone was older. Everyone was really driven and really knew exactly what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. They came in with very specific questions. And I, that wasn't my approach to schooling. Mm-hmm. I went to graduate school to get more questions, yeah. not to pursue a specific question. Yeah. And so I feel like I, I was really out of place. I didn't know what Tamil was, and everyone, it seemed, was studying it, mm-hmm. and I had to look it up. Um, <laughs> and I went to uh, Chris Gamwell's class on philosophical theology for a solid month, thinking I had read the wrong thing every time. <laughs> Because I had no idea what he was talking about. And I was like, I, I must have the wrong syllabus yeah. because something has gone deeply, deeply wrong here. Yeah. So it was just, the, it was in part the shift from BA to MA, you know, the, mm-hmm. the whole shift in pedagogy that happens there. But it was also just really sort of blowing the boundaries of my mind mm-hmm. wide open. Mm-hmm. And it really helped. Yeah. I think it gave me a different perspective. And now I teach in a religious studies department. So yeah. those two years were really important. Yeah, that makes you a know. huge difference. Yeah. We had we had Gamwell for the like the intro sequence. And <laughs> I <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and and what I what I remember most was he had this amazing gift for you could ask him a question and then he would whatever it was, he would rephrase it into a really good question. Right. And you were just like, was like is this on the test? Yeah. <laughs> but it was like, I was like, I don't, I don't think that's what I meant, but, but let's go with but that. But we're going to go with your yeah. way. Your way is better. <laughs> you have the smart way. And so then you went on to Notre Dame. And that yeah. was, again, right away, like you. Yeah, straight through. Yeah, that's, straight to Notre Dame. That's awesome. For, I, I, originally, the, the original move to visit was in part because Michael, my husband, and I were already dating. And he had gone to Notre Dame. So I had never even thought about it, but, mm-hmm. and also because Notre Dame is, has a lot of resources yeah. <laughs> and that's really invaluable mm-hmm. when you're trying to write a dissertation and yeah. get a PhD. Like you need infrastructure and money Yeah. and Notre Dame has a lot of both. Yeah. And so that was really good, but it was then another radical shift to be in a super clerical yeah. environment after Chicago, which is totally not right. that. So I remember being offended that there was Christian art on the library at Notre Dame. <laughs> I thought that was really inappropriate. The library was a place That's for so study. interesting. And so it shouldn't be riddled in art that looked like it came from a missalette. All right. But, you know, I, I ended up 
studying there with Kathy Hilkert, who's amazing, and Dick McBrien, who changed my life. Because um, that's when I realized that I did have questions. Mm-hmm. They, were just, they also happened to overlap a lot with McBrien's questions. Mm-hmm. I had church questions yeah. that I, didn't, I couldn't articulate because I didn't really know what ecclesiology was sure. until I got to Notre Dame. Sure. And so that really sort of got me going again. Yeah. So what has studying ecclesiology like like been for you or meant for you or like what are the like the big questions that you bring to it that you're trying to work out? I think what I love about studying ecclesiology is that it's a big mess and that it's really messy politically and it's messy sociologically and it's messy spiritually and I kind of love sort of rolling around in that mess. <laughs> the hot mess of the church. It is a hot mess and I love a hot mess. So it's so fun. <laughs> I like I, I loved McBrien's sort of political edge, the fact that he was unafraid to be himself, that he was unafraid to say what he thought because he had the expertise to do it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get there. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a person who could do that. Yeah. So I really liked that. And, yeah. and so what I bring to it is just, you know, questions of how do you run this big group of people in a way that tries to sort of conform mm-hmm. to these impossible ideals of unconditional love and total justice and liberation. How do you sort of get these two realities, which are so different, to somehow come together? Awesome. So, so then one question I have, so you teach now at Manhattan College mm-hmm. and you're teaching in a religious studies program, which is sort of its own, I don't know, morass in a certain way. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious what that's like for you as a theologian teaching your religious studies department. Yeah. Manhattan had an interesting history in that it was originally, obviously, a high school for boys. <laughs> the Christian brothers were running mm-hmm. it. And then it became a college that was only for boys. And then it became co-ed. In that process, it went from being a religion department, which required you know five religion classes a year or something ridiculous from the students, to a theology department. And then interestingly, after Vatican II, it became a religious studies department. Mm. In part, as a, I, I think I don't think that Brother Luke, who ushered in this change, meant it this way, but it, uh, many of the faculty or the older faculty did interpret it as a sort of maturation, mm. sort of growing mm. up from being religion to being theology to finally being a grown-up and being yeah. religious studies. And being so, objective and Right, yeah, and yeah, the, the, all and... the whole sort of the, the derision of theology mm-hmm. that happens in some circles, although that's lessening in religious studies, this sort of idea that you need to divest yourself of any kind of commitment in order to really study a mm-hmm. phenomenon. And so I remember being a little bit shocked by that, by the way in which some of my colleagues talked about theology, you know, like, well, that's theology mm-hmm. in a really sort of dismissive way. And so that was a process. It was a mutual learning process because mm-hmm. I think coming from Notre Dame, I was coming from a position where theology was, you know, very much the queen of the sciences, yeah. you know, yeah, really privileged, right? It was a very privileged place and it was very much, you know, a, a discipline among disciplines. It was not sort of a way station on the way to becoming a discipline. Mm-hmm. So one of the early, you know, I've had ongoing conversations with some of my colleagues about that. And I think we've come to this sort of understanding that, you know, the way that they were using theology is not the way that I was approaching it, that Mm. there are sort of insider discourses and outsider discourses and that we can all participate in all of them. Mm -hmm. But I do, I mean, I am committed when I teach the intro class, I teach it as a scholar of religion and not as much as a theologian. Interesting. You know, I really try my best. I mean, I end up lapsing um, <laughs> because we're all imperfect and flawed. But uh, well, we all, yeah, we all have commitments. I mean, right? Like, yeah. Well, right. And the religion, you know, it's not like the religious studies scholars are uncommitted, like <laughs> free floating intellects or something. They're, you know, they're just as committed as the rest of us. So, so yeah, I do my best. But it's also freshmen. 
So yeah. it's not like, you know, I'm not going in there like, you know, I don't know, some making highly careful methodological distinctions. Yeah, they have no idea. Like they don't, they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> so I mostly I'm trying to make them care. Yeah. Um, and that's that involves commitment. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of the slogan for all like freshman theology or yeah, religion like, classes. I'm just here to make you care. Yeah. This, there's a reason that this is interesting. Yes. In fact, that's Manhattan College's motto: Religion matters. <laughs> That's our religious studies uh, tagline. You're laughing, but I'm dead serious. Like all of our promotional materials say, religion matters. Wow. Yeah, it does, though, yeah, guys. Colleges have a real gift for. Yeah, well, slogans. when you got a brand, you got yeah. a brand. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's so true. we're branded. Religion matters. So, one question kind of follows from that is the what like what teaching means for you, mm-hmm. right? Like, so on one hand, in this experience from you know the teacher who drew you into theology in high school mm-hmm. to the experience with like McBrien right. or so forth. Like what was teaching always part of the goal for you? Was that something you really wanted to do? Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted to teach. I love the idea of being, I'm, I'm such a nerd. I love taking classes. Mm-hmm. I loved taking tests. I still love taking tests. Really? I do. I love it. All right. I love going to lectures and taking notes at lectures. Like, I am a hardcore nerd mm-hmm. um, in that regard. So I love the classroom as a privileged place. So it's it's a real sort of joy for me to get to do that all of the time. Not that I like grading. Not that I like the kids who sit in the back with their caps down looking at their phones. But I think it's, it's a real sort of a, an amazing grace to get to mm-hmm. be in a classroom with students, especially young adult students, every week and sort of try to woo them and make it interesting. <laughs> you know, teaching is very... I had a, I had actually a great college professor, Sue Simonitis, who talked about teaching as flirtation, a sort of extended interesting. intellectual flirtation with your students, trying to sort of get them to go on this date with you mm-hmm. <laughs> and Paul Tillich, yeah. <laughs> right? Or you and David Tracy. <laughs> and to sort of go on a journey with you and just to think about bigger things. It's always been a really spiritual place for me, the classroom. I've had a lot of deeply spiritual experiences in learning things mm-hmm. from professors. And I don't like, Can you give, like, that's a really interesting idea to me. Can you, yeah. like, do you have an example? Yes, or like a, okay. I, have, I have an example right away. When Sue Simonides taught modern theology or God in modern theology, possibly. Yeah, God in modern theology. She did a lecture on hermeneutics and I didn't know what that was. I was junior in college and she explained it meaning behind in and in front of the text and it completely blew my mind and I was almost moved to tears Wow! (laughs) yeah it was just kind of this idea like wow I guess I've always thought this but I've never heard it said Mm -hmm. and so it's that that sort of inductive method of Mm -hmm. hermeneutics that when you see it theorized it just it still gives me kind of goosebumps I'm such a dork but it does (laughs) Like, I just think it's amazing. Just own it? Just own yeah, it? Yeah, I really do. I just, I yeah, it still gives me goose. And I try to re- recreate that lecture, but of course, my students at Manhattan are like, you're just a nerd. I'll never be able to do that, probably. But yeah. that was a moment for me where I was like, again, it really it expanded my horizons in the act of learning about the expansion of horizons. Wow. And it was amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I can, and I can definitely sympathize with that desire to, like, <laughs> recreate the life-changing lecture. Right. And you can't. Like, no. you're always falling short. No. And, and even teaching the same thing semester to semester, mm-hmm. you know, like, I'll have a class, and it will just, like, the class will just sing, right? Like it'll, right. It'll, it'll be firing on all cylinders, and it'll be beautiful. Right. They're and, like, into it. You're into the it. The questions are just the right questions, and, like, someone has, like, the insight they needed to get. You're like, yes. That, uh-huh. And then the next semester, 
Like, I go into that day and I'm like, this is going to be the day. And it's just not the right. day. <laughs> they didn't read. You brought the wrong notes. Yeah. You're sort of flying by the seat of your pants. Yeah. And you're like, this is awful. Like, the pop culture reference didn't work. The right. joke didn't fly. They've like, never seen Caddyshack. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is a disaster. <laughs> I don't have any other cultural touchstones. Yeah. Yeah, that's really. Yeah, I've I've learned we're we're past the point where Harry Potter works. Oh yeah, like I, I can't even do that. It's it's yeah, yeah. it's really frustrating. And I, I'm like I'm not huge in Harry Potter, but for a while I was like, this is like the yeah they the they were like that right? age yeah so right like that was perfect. the thing. And then and then I tried very briefly to use Twilight, and that that no failed, no failed abysmally. There's there, there's such a thing as going too low. No no yeah yeah <laughs> you know like you want to meet them where you are, but I I yeah I I think I undersold the situation in that case. That's awesome. Um, how then would you maybe characterize for you the relationship between like teaching and research, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, this is a you know, I mean, a, a, a serious thing for yeah. a lot of people. I think that's. I think when I got out of graduate school, I thought that there would be a lot more overlap between my teaching and my research, and I think that that happens when you go to like you know, all, many of us go to very good graduate programs mm-hmm. where the undergraduates are brilliant. And so, and, and we're and like our models are right, and we know, were mentors, all brilliant right? undergrads, mm-hmm. surely. And so we expect to be teaching a room full of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was probably one of the biggest adjustments in just going to teach at a college is that you know you're teaching everyone who was in class with you, mm-hmm. not a room full of yous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's a it's an adjustment. And I don't think I thought that I was going to be sort of trying things out in the classroom that I would end up writing about. And to some extent that happens, but a lot of it it doesn't happen. It's certainly not if you only teach undergraduates, which is what I do. I only teach undergrads. So th- we don't read the same things and we're not thinking in the same way about the things that I'm going to talk to them about and the things I'm going to go and write a book about. Mm-hmm. I do I will occasionally give them something that I've written sort of toward the end mm-hmm. when I'm tired of making up new lectures. <laughs> <laughs> True confessions. <laughs> I will give them something that I've read mostly to sort of make clear to them, you know, that the things that we do in the classroom are not really necessarily related to the things that I'm doing in my research mm. and to sort of give them a fuller picture of what it means to be a college professor. Mm-hmm. I do that in large part because I am Hispanic, and I think that especially my Hispanic students who have never had a Hispanic mm. professor deserve to know sort of the fullness of what the job is Yeah, because it helps stoke their imagination and hopefully, yeah. you know, even if it's not in religion or theology, that they should, you know, if they want to pursue PhDs, that they should know that this is the richness of the life. Yeah, yeah. And so I like to do that as a modeling exercise. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, it's not as integrated, I think, as I thought it was going to be when I was in graduate school. But there's something nice about that, too. It's nice to have, like, sort of your special writing, thinking place and then your day-to-day teaching place. I think that that's fun. And it makes the summer different from the school year. Mm -hmm. If you have a high teaching load like I do, we're on a 3-3. Okay. So, yeah, so it it helps. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I don't write really during the school year unless I absolutely have a horrifically aggressive deadline. Mm-hmm. I do my my writing, my long-term writing in the summer and over Christmas. Yeah. Do you so like two two directions I kind of want to go with that. One mm-hmm. is just like a like day to day week to week like wh- what is it like for you hmm. being a theologian like you know, navigating that life. Uh-huh. And then I mean beyond that just uh, curiosity about like what are the projects you're working on now? Where are, uh-huh. you, where are you going with that? 
I'll do the pragmatic one first. Day to day, week to week, it's a constant juggling act <laughs> because I'm a laywoman who is also married to another theologian and who has two children who are small. Because of the flexibility of our job, it means that I can do a lot at school with the kids. So I'm mm. a room mom and things like that. So, you know, I have this whole other life uh-huh. that I also live <laughs> where I'm raising kids uh, as a co-parent with my spouse, who is 100% a co-parent. And I think that that is probably the only way that I have not ended up in an institution, and neither has he. (laughs) Um, The the best advice I can give to young female theologians especially is that you really, if you are going to be married, you need a co-parent spouse and a co-spouse. You need a partner in life and not someone who has really rigid expectations of the way things ought to go yeah so that has been the sort of so yeah so day to day you know I teach three times a week the days that I'm not teaching now that both of my children are in elementary school I can go to the office Mm -hmm. but for many years including the run-up to tenure we were just talking about this a bunch of women here uh, we were working our full-time jobs on 20 hours a week (laughs) which was insane And none of us know how we got tenure doing that. But essentially, yeah, like we were home with babies or nursing or whatever. And also trying to crank stuff out and teach new classes and go to meetings and not say no to things. So it was that was much more challenging. So now that I can go to the office five days a week, ironically, after I got tenure, (laughs) but I don't need to be at my (laughs) office. But, you know, it's much easier. So I can go during the day and then Mm -hmm. I leave in time to pick up the children twice a week. And then on Fridays, I don't go in at all because that's my mental health day. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I try not to answer email. I try not to really do anything that's related to the college mm-hmm. that day. I eat lunch with a, friend, a group of friends, or breakfast with a group of friends of mine who are mm-hmm. moms. All of us have children in the same grade, and we sort of keep ourselves sane by doing that on mm-hmm. Fridays. And then on the weekends, you know, we, do, we run the small business that is a family. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't really work on the, on the weekends. I have to do it sort of. Monday through Thursday. Has the has the experience of being a parent, spouse, or theologian, this kind of this juggling act you talk about, mm-hmm. uh, has that shaped the the interest in ecclesiology that you have? No, or? I was going to be an ecclesiologist no matter what. I think it has shaped the the way in which I work in that I'm much more flexible. Mm-hmm. I used to be I'm only a night worker or I'm only a day worker or whatever. That that's that stopped. Yeah. And I've also learned to sort of accept my own process more. I don't write 15 minutes a day. You know, like a lot of my mentors, well, if you're mentored by Dick McBrien, rest, <laughs> may he rest in peace. And, you know, may he be, he be enjoying the beatific vision that he so deserves. You know, he was uh, 7 to 5.30 at his desk. And he ate lunch at his desk. And he was essentially a CEO <laughs> right, in a Brooks Brothers suit. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And that is the way that he worked because that mm-hmm. is the way that he was socialized. I don't do that. So I think having to juggle all that stuff has shaped the way in which I work, but not necessarily the things that I write about. Yeah. I try to not uh, – I haven't written about motherhood. And a number of people have asked my spouse and I to write a theology of family, which I, I, I'm not going to say we will never do because that's not the sort of thing that I – I just don't anticipate that that is uh, something that's going to happen for us. It's not not particularly a question for you, at least in academic sense. No, it's not really a question for me in the academic sense, and I don't find it valuable for people in heterosexual marriages to be writing prescriptive Mm -hmm. texts about family life. Mm -hmm. I think families work how they work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, I I don't really see the point in that. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm sure that there are people out there who are writing very important theologies of the family. I just don't know that we have something to contribute yeah. to that conversation. That's kind of how I felt at this conference. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I'm all for the census of daily. I, right. I have nothing to say. Do you have nothing like, to say about yeah, it? I, I just, Whereas I'm like, I wish I could have gone to every session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I learned a lot. That's how it I is. just, like, I looked at the caller papers and I was like, there. I, I have nothing in this in this year I have nothing to get Yeah, no me. horse in the race. Which is fine, which is fine. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't have to do all the things. I don't have anything about, to say about justice and mercy, so that's cool. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. All right. That's yeah. So that's yeah, yeah. kind of the fun of the conference. So then what are the like projects you have coming up that you're working on now that right. are like what are the questions that are exciting you? So I've got two projects going on now. One, I'm co-editing a Feshra for Beth Johnson with a few of her former students, and many of her former students are contributing, which is really cool. And that's coming out with liturgical, hopefully in time for next year's CTSA. Oh, great. Uh, which will be the year that Beth turns 75, and also the a big anniversary from when she was the president, maybe the 20th or the 30th anniversary mm-hmm. from when she was 20th, from when she, her presidential address. So we're very, very excited about that. And is it is it the Feshrift that's specifically about her work, or is it the Feshrift where it's like a, th- a theme that she really likes, people just kind of go all over with it? It's a theme that she decided. Good, yeah. <laughs> Other people let their students decide the theme, but we went with this. Um, I, I would have wanted it to be a feminist theology volume, but she wanted, she, you know, and I really respect this, she said that she really wanted to push forward with where her interests are right now, and so we're doing, it's an, an ecological theology volume, nice. and it's going to be great. I mean, we have great contributors. It's going to be a really solid text. I think the title of it is Turning to the Heavens and the Earth, and it's really good. Moltmann's in it. Whoa. Yeah, I know. I, I got a fax from Moltmann, and now I can die. Like, everything's <laughs> fine. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I really never expected that to be a part of my life. So yeah, it's going to be a really great, a great volume. And then personally, my own work, I'm writing a book for Orbis right now that's going to be entitled Cuéntame, which is it's a Spanish word that means tell me, but also don't forget to count me. Uh, it's a little double uh, thing. I had to kind of fight for the Spanish word, but I'm happy with it. And it's uh, about narrative, the role of narrative in ecclesiology, and mm-hmm. different the ways in which different narratives shape the way we tell the story of the church. So the sort of historical narrative of American Catholicism is one of the chapters. The demographic narrative of the church in the present is another one, but also using literary narratives to get at the census fidelium, which is why I was way into this conference, Mm -hmm. and to, to sort of look at the ways in which we use art or the way in which art reveals the way that people are really thinking about the church um, and really sort of living out the faith Mm -hmm. and using that as a source for ecclesiology from the bottom up instead of an ecclesiology from abstract principles down. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm, and that's due September 15th, so I will be doing that all summer. Good. That's awesome. Is it coming along well? It is. It is. I started it when I was on sabbatical the spring before last. So I wrote last summer, and then I'll write again this summer and hopefully crank it out. Yeah. And your presentation here from here was it part was of that? Okay. related to that, yeah. So the presentation here was about Rosario Ferrer, who's a Puerto Rican author, and her short story about the Virgin of Guadalupe, about her understanding as an eight-year-old of the Virgin of Guadalupe, really sort of spurred this idea that the people are understanding our religious symbology and our popular devotion in radically different ways than we sometimes anticipate. Hmm. But the, that the all these divergent understandings can still lead to what are essentially orthodox places nice it's exciting one thing i want to go back to mm-hmm. that, that struck me and 
and, and this is not fair game. Let me know. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. But you'd mentioned earlier uh, the experience of uh, you're a Hispanic theologian, uh-huh. and one of the things that you like, you want to model for Hispanic students is mm-hmm. options. Uh, I guess yeah. is that a way to put that? Yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of wondering if you can say more about that experience, and or if you want to say more about that experience, even as as an academic and as a Hispanic, as a Hispanic in the academy. Yeah. I don't know if that's a fair question or yeah, not. No, but it is. Yeah. It is. And I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's important. I didn't grow up. I, I grew up in Miami, which is such a Hispanic city that I did not. And I, in the generation that I was in and where I lived, my social location was such that I did never experienced any kind of discrimination or anything like that because I grew up in essentially a bubble of people who were mm-hmm. exactly like me. And so when I went to college, it was a little bit of a shock to be in a different in a much more sort of international and by international I mean so many more Anglos than Mm, I had gone to school with and so I didn't really have a sense of the United States as a whole I really only had a sense of Miami and Latin America because of that I I was not really conscious of this sort of Hispanic identity as a different sort of thing I was always sort of Cuban very Cuban Cuban American and I still I remain very much self-identified as that and not as some sort of generic hispanic because none of us are yeah but the older i get and the longer i'm away from miami the sort of the the ways in which i think about that identity have changed and the ways in which i deploy it right Mm. or or Mm. use it in class and and the responsibility that i feel about it has changed significantly so manhattan college teaches a lot of first generation students Many of them are Dominican, many of them are Cuban, many of them are from Central America. And I, and many of them have never seen a professional, hmm. you know, someone with a PhD who speaks Spanish like them and has a crazy grandmother like them, like their own particular crazy grandmother. <laughs> and so I, you know, I, I love those students with a special kind of love, right? Yeah. And, I, and I do want them to sort of think very broadly. I think a lot of the thing about having immigrant parents is feeling a real responsibility to make it, especially financially. And I want to make it sort of clear to them that their life is their own and that they have all kinds of ways in which they can be really successful. And that if higher education is that way, that they have sort of the right and the responsibility Mm -hmm. to do that. I, I think it's important for... Latina girls to see a Latina woman in this sort of model. You know, I think it changes the way that they think about their own lives. Not that I think that they're going to be like me. I don't don't really care about that, and I don't want that, and it's not like a power trip. It's just this sort of, you know, it's just an idea, like, Mm -hmm. to to think about something else. And even, you know, I I tend to be, I I tend to be really sort of, I do a lot of self-disclosure in class, so I talk very much about how my husband is Puerto Rican and he does all the cooking and he mm. does half the parenting, you know, because I don't want it to be that like, oh, all Hispanic men are X right. you know, okay. or whatever, yeah, like sure. that there are alternative models of having a family that's equitable and having a job and having children and sort of muddling your way through it in, in a way that maybe your parents didn't, you know, or mm-hmm. you haven't seen or thought about. But there are other ways of doing it. Yeah. And so I do take that really seriously. Yeah, um, and so I've, I've thought about the sort of the Hispanic public as, a, as one of my publics when I'm doing theology, in part because I can't extricate myself from my own reality, but also because I think it's, it's sort of 
cool. We're in a cool moment right now where we're sort of integrating, especially the Cubans, right, are in the process of really assimilating in mm -hmm. interesting ways, but not wanting to lose the sort of distinctiveness, just not locating that distinctiveness in sexism, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. There's, and there's a way in which what you're talking about to me, it sounds like, a, like imagination, yeah. right? Like being able to imagine alternative possibilities and Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, in part, I'm, I'm thinking for myself in terms of like, because like everyone else, I come from a particular context and right. upbringing and everything else. Like, there are ways of being that just haven't occurred to me. Right. There's, a, there's, a, I mean, for me, there's often initially there's this sort of like friction or resistance or, or even defensiveness, and mm -hmm. then there's this sort of like, I don't know, an empathy that that assists that. I guess for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really helpful to hear. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it's not like I suffered or like I didn't think I could be a college professor because I had never seen a Cuban woman be a college professor. Like, that wasn't it. Sure. You know, like my grandparents were very well educated and they had gone to college in this country and stuff. Like, it, it's that wasn't it at all. Yeah. It was just a matter of, like, I, I recognized the privilege of having that upbringing. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of sort of class issues and things like that in Hispanic cultures that aren't recognized or at least acknowledged. But I... I, I still feel a responsibility, you know, like mm -hmm. out of that privilege comes a responsibility to say, you know, everyone should be able to think about this and everyone's no one should limit their imagination when they're 20 to like, I have to be a business student because that's what my parents want. Yeah, or that's what I think. That's the the path to financial independence. Yeah, or whatever. you that's know, like they, they have to even if they don't do it just to be able to conceptualize it. It seems like for a lot of my students, because like my, my school is a business school and everything else, mm -hmm. that a lot of my students are first-generation students too, yeah. and it really is a matter of this is very expensive, right? And I like I <laughs> they yeah. it, it it helped me to, to realize the privilege I had, which was my parents were well educated and everything, and yeah. so like I went to college for like the life of the mind, right? And, and all of that, and I was really like I it I knew I had to get a job or something after college, but it wasn't. It wasn't like a, a pressing kind of existential threat. Right. It was like that. It'll work itself out. Like right. It'll, and yeah, I think I was somewhere in the middle there. Okay. You know, like certainly gr Cuban girls don't tend to go away to college. Mm. <laughs> it's not something that happens. And I was really committed to doing that. And my mother, God love her, was very progressive and let me. And I went to Fordham and lived by myself, you know, like away from home, which mm -hmm. is a really big deal. And I never had to work because my mother really sacrificed a lot so that I wouldn't have to work and go to school. This is not the case for the majority of my yeah. students who take 18 buses to get to Manhattan College from Queens. It takes them three hours both ways, and they also work. Yeah. You know, so they're making incredible sacrifices to be there. And that's why I think that they deserve to imagine whatever they want, mm -hmm. you know, even if they don't go ahead and do it. You know, they still deserve... To, to think of every possibility and then to rule them out. Yeah. But not to rule things out out of hand. Yeah, not to be hemmed in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really, you know, and I know it's, it's really expensive. And this does sort of seem like only a life of the mind sort mm -hmm. of thing. But that's why religion matters. <laughs> you try to get them to... Way to bring it back around. <laughs> I'm all about the branding. <laughs> that was a great callback. Oh man. So yeah, that's yeah, but I do I I love I've I've occupied the sort of Hispanic identity in different ways the mm -hmm. older I've gotten and the more, you know, even at this storied academy that I love very much, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen people sort of shut off when I've been introduced as a Hispanic theologian. Oh, really? And like, oh, 
oh, I see what happened here. You know, like, you don't care. And that's fine. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, dynamic. So, is that, you know, I'm curious, is that generational at all? Yeah. Or? Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. And that that has shifted. But although I do still think that, that a lot of places, and, you know, CTSA is one of them, have a long way to go, not out of uh, desire um, mm-hmm. or lack of desire for diversifying or whatever, but just sort of strategies. Yeah. I think we really need to work on strategies and blind spots. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody here is has ill will. It's yeah. just a matter of how do you really get it to happen? You know, mm-hmm. how do you get the board to look different how mm-hmm. do you get the leadership teams you know and that's sort of where i want to mm-hmm. focus the ctsa work anyway. yeah and yeah, yeah just become a radicalized person yeah. <laughs> and congratulations on your board election oh thanks yeah meetings Woo! <laughs> <laughs> no yeah. it's a real it's a real privilege i love the ctsa and i've always felt really at home here so i'm i'm delighted to like it's one of the things that i'm delighted to serve mm-hmm. you know wonderful you you mentioned earlier uh, advice you would have for women going in academia, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering what are what other advice do you have for you know people going into theology, mm-hmm. generally or in specific or, right. or whatnot, <laughs> or, or what are, what are what are things that either maybe you wish you had known uh-huh. or been told, or things that you're really grateful for that shaped you. Right, um, I think I'm. I'm grateful that I went into a department with someone who is a friend of mine, right? So Michelle Saracino, who's now my chair, mm. we met here at CTSA, and she was also a, she is also a lay woman. She also has young children, and she is not the kind not to do real talk. Mm-hmm. She's all about real talk, and I think you need a, someone in your institution who will be very real with you mm-hmm. um, and tell you things that are uncomfortable as a friend. Yeah. So that's really important. And have an ally, you know, like she's really been an ally for me, but also someone who could be like, you know, you can stop the tenure clock or not. It's up to you. But if you do, this is what the tenure committee is going to say, even though they shouldn't, Mm -hmm. they still do, Mm. you know? And so that's been invaluable having that, that friendship and yeah, friendship. I had good mentors at Notre Dame who were all about the importance of friendship first. You, you have a cohort of friends, not just for sharing work, but for really sort of sharing your life. And that really makes a difference in navigating the job market, navigating the CTSA, na- like navigating the career. Mm-hmm. So that's been really helpful. Other than that, I would defer to Tina Fey on all... <laughs> job advice so don't cry unless you're going to scare everybody and don't eat lean cuisine because <laughs> um, everyone will judge you but other than that you know no I think the older I get and I am getting very old I feel like careers are long and things like childhoods are short mm. so don't be afraid to jump out uh, for your kids, uh, don't be afraid to turn down a meeting mm-hmm. um, if you have children. But also, don't be afraid to tell your kids, you know, that mommy or daddy, whatever, has to work, and yeah. or or to bring them to the CTSA <laughs> <laughs> and make them sit there quietly for a little bit. <laughs> that has to happen too. So yeah, so I'm not as I was very worried very early on that I wasn't writing enough and that I wasn't and that I didn't publish my dissertation and that I wasn't going to be a big name scholar and that it was all slipping away. But that was really like the first 10 years of my job. 
mm. was spent thinking that I wasn't doing enough without realizing that I would be doing this job for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so there's really no point in trying to do it all in the first 10. Yeah. So I think I freaked myself out. Yeah. About not being, you know, a big theologian six years out of a PhD when mm-hmm. nobody is. Some people do it then and some people do it later and some people never do it. And we're, and all of it is fine. Yeah. You know, it's not the end all be all. That's really helpful to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you you've, publish you've, when you have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> Don't publish. You've, you've named so many of my subtle terrors <laughs> in this field. That's really helpful to hear. <laughs> it's so true. Like, uh, who cares? You know, who, and like, what was it that I read? Oh, where was it? It's a really important text for this book that I'm writing on narrative. John O'Brien, that's what it is. He's like an Irish, not like an Irish, he is an Irish theologian. (laughs) And he said something like, it's okay because there are people coming after you who will write everything that you write and do everything that you do better than you. And that's really freeing. So just do whatever you're going to do, you know, and then someone will come behind you and be better at it. And that's going to be fine, too. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a Luther sin boldly move. Yeah. And that was really freeing to read. I was like, my God, that's so true. Why do I feel like I have to get it right? Just yeah. get it, you know, say something that you think is important. And then, you know, the, someone will come behind you and fix it. I had, a, I had a wonderful moment like a year or so ago where I realized, like, I have questions and I have things I want to answer. I, want to, I mean, I want to do that as a service, you know, largely mm-hmm. to the church and everything. But I also just want to do it for me. Yeah. And, and and some of those questions aren't interesting to other people, and, and that's fine. Right. But uh, there's yeah. m- probably somebody out there to whom they're super interested. Yeah. And it's going to be like, wow, I'm really yeah. glad that th- he wrote this. <laughs> you know, that's fine. I'm also, I'm also thinking about my own experience at the Div School in Chicago <sighs> and how, like, first quarter or something, like, the, like that first class we had to take, and it was such a experience and everyone feeling like they had to show off all the time. Yeah. And I remember, like, our introductory meeting, like, welcome to the master's program. And half the questions were, how do I get into your Ph.D. program? Yeah. And it, it was it was name-dropping after name-dropping <laughs> after name-dropping. And it was, like, just saying a name, like, like, someone would say Nietzsche because they want, like, they needed you to know that they knew the name. Yes. And, like, they were substituting names for arguments. Mm-hmm. And there was a point for, like, a, a, at least a group of us, and maybe more with Riley, where, like, ha- partway through that quarter or the next quarter, we realized, like, just relax. Yeah. <laughs> really, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, everyone is exactly as insecure as you yeah. are. You know, and, and also like you get to like know some of these older people. <laughs> They're still totally flying by the seat of their pants yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Like one of the greatest things that that I have in my life is knowing people who will remain nameless, who are seasoned, established, very well-respected scholars who stay up the night before and do their paper. <laughs> and I know that because I'm on Facebook at that time, and they are too. And I'll be like, oh, my God, I'm still writing. And they will send me a very private message saying, I am too. And just be like, wow. It's so heartening to think that it never, yeah, yeah. you know, this is totally an okay way to be. Yeah, yeah. And so that was, that's really nice to know. Or, or any time, like, a senior scholar, like, they're giving a paper, they're like, I'm just going to cut out section three because I'm running out of time. Right, it's like, and you're like, oh, Ooh. you also have imperfections. <laughs> just, 
So as we kind of wrap up here, uh, we like to finish with a less serious set of questions. Cool. To, to maybe gauge, gauge gauge that for you. Mm-hmm. So so first of all, are you are you team coffee or team tea? Coffee. A hundred percent coffee, and American coffee, not Cuban coffee. Although I will do Cuban coffee when I'm in Miami. Okay. But that's sort of an all day affair. Whereas American coffee, I'm very rigid about. Two cups in the morning. That's it. Like like straight black. Like you oh no no no, no, okay. no cream and splenda. Okay. All right. And in fact, uh, plug Fair Trade Cafe Salvador. Okay. Really good. And if you're at a Catholic institution, sometimes you can get a discount through nice. Google Exchange. So definitely. Good to know. Good to know. Mm-hmm. All right. What is your favorite biblical name? Well, I have a son named Benjamin, so that's definitely one of them. Yeah, I don't know. Not so into the crazy ones. I love the name Jonah. Mm. It's very funny because I live in a in a very uh, Jewish neighborhood, and a lot of my neighbors have children who are named Brady, <laughs> and my children his name my child is named Benjamin. And it just seems <laughs> like something is off here. Yeah, so I I love Benjamin and Daniel and and Elizabeth because of the visitation, and that's mm-hmm. my favorite scene in the Bible. Nice. Mm-hmm. This one, you, you can go either way if you want, but what would be your, your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? Oh, I'm a cheese ball about liturgy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so my favorites are in Spanish, Pescador de Hombres, which I love, which is Lord When You Came to the Seashore in English. Mm. Not really very good in English. Excellent in Spanish. <laughs> And in Spanish, I like crazy funeral songs, <laughs> like On Eagle, or in English, I like On Eagle's Wings, mm-hmm. and I like Here I Am, Lord. I love those things. They bring back great, beautiful memories in my life. Nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, my husband is going to be very embarrassed about that because he's very much a contemporary liturgical musician. <laughs> a lot of bongos? Or? Uh, he, yeah, he's uh, big into, there has to be a drum set. Nice. If there's no drum set, he doesn't really want to partake <laughs> of that liturgy. <laughs> It's a make or break for him. Interesting. Of, of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Nail polish. All right. I've not got that one. Manicures, manicures, pedicures. <laughs> yeah, manicures, pedicures, makeup, accessories. It's. I know it sounds really frivolous, but these are things that take up a lot of my time, and I love very much. That's awesome. <laughs> Whatever, no shame in this game. No, no, not at all. That's fantastic. <laughs> and and what what do you think would be the title of your biography or autobiography? Oh man, I would hope it's something like "She Got Things Done." <laughs> <laughs> There's a goal for all of us exactly. to inspire too. She got it, done. <laughs> it doesn't say well <laughs> or on time. <laughs> Just she got it done. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, this Steve, was a lot this of fun was so read. much fun. Yeah, I really thank you. It. Um, yeah, this was really fun. Yay. Hi, Daily Theology. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 